Right. Um, Our reading this morning, then, is taken from Matthew chapter 27. It's on page uh, 1000, if you've got one of the church Bibles. And we're going to begin at verse 57. So that's Matthew 27, starting at verse 57 on page 1000. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb, The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Good morning, everyone. Nice to be back in the building after, uh, personally, for 16 months. So uh, it's similar but different. I'm not sure I recognize everyone. Anyway, it's good to be back and uh, a warm welcome to you. Uh, People have long had a fascination, haven't they, with with the need to see burial places and uh, and relics of uh, of those who have been held in, in high esteem. Um, On the screen behind me, you can see uh, a painting of a famous biblical event. And I wonder if any of you can can guess what that event might be that's being shown there. Well, it's Doubting Thomas being asked to put his finger into the side of uh, Jesus. There is a spoiler alert there, just in case anyone's wondering what's coming in the next few weeks. But if you go to the, um, the church of Santa Croce in Rome, then you can actually see the preserved finger of doubting Thomas for yourself, allegedly. The next slide. I've no idea who St. Clair was, but in that box are her fingernails and hair clippings. And if you're lucky enough to be in Assisi, you can visit the uh, Santa Chiara Basilica and see that for yourself. On the next slide, if you're squeamish, you might want to look away. I've said that too late, haven't I? Anyway, that is reputed to be the head, or what's left of the head, of John the Baptist on the silver platter in, uh, in Amiens Cathedral in France. Except for the fact that the Munich Residence Museum in Munich claims to have his head also, as shown in that slide as does the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, in Syria. So that complicates things rather, doesn't it? 
At various times, uh, and even today, many people are obsessed, aren't they, with seeing the grave, seeing some remains, uh, or some relic of those that they admire. And it's not just restricted to biblical characters, is it? Or even saints of the Catholic Church, they're really into this stuff. Even if we don't necessarily want to see the remains, fingernails or otherwise, we love to see, it seems, the final resting place of those that we've held in high esteem, or simply just those people who are famous. This morning, we've, uh, we've had read to us a passage about the burial and burial place of the Lord Jesus. And we have before us two very different attitudes to the crucified body of Jesus. Those who recognized Jesus for who he was, and therefore honored and served him, and those who would rather that he was dead and buried. And you know, it's really no different today. All men and women will fall into one of those two camps. So this morning, I want to look at those two parties that have been described for us uh, in this passage. Joseph of Arimathea and the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, throughout the Gospels, and especially in the last few weeks, we've seen examples of service for the Lord Jesus, haven't we? And not necessarily by the 12 disciples, but by others who um, appear briefly and then sort of fade into obscurity. I wonder if you remember any of them. Simon of Cyrene a couple of weeks ago. The woman of disrepute who washed the Lord Jesus' feet with her hair. So who was this character, Joseph of Arimathea? Because again, he seems to pop out of nowhere, doesn't he? Well, the four Gospels together present uh, a slightly richer picture of who Joseph was than just this account that we've, that we've read in Matthew. Here in Matthew, we've read that he was uh, a disciple of Jesus and that he was a rich man. That's all we read. In the Gospel of Mark, we read that he was a prodigal that existed in Jerusalem. We also read there that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. In, gospel, in, in Luke's gospel, we read that he was a good and a just man and that he had not consented to the decision taken by the Sanhedrin to have Jesus crucified. And finally, in John's gospel, we read that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So Joseph of Arimathea was a senior prominent member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Now, this was the supreme council for religious, judicial, and political functions in the land of the Jews at that time. He was, uh, his was an extremely highly regarded job and one which would inherently require the holder to be properly Jewish, adhering to um, uh, all the Jewish laws and the standards and making sure that those were followed throughout the land. And as such, he would be a man of very high standing. And as we read, he was rich. Now, crucially, at some point over the previous three years, Joseph of Arimathea had become a follower of Jesus. He must have recognized him for who he was, for the true Messiah that the Jews had long been waiting for. But we read in John's Gospel that he kept it quiet. Why? For fear of the Jews perhaps on account of how the other council members would treat him and his family, and moreover, whether he would be able to hold his job. 
Simon last week presented to us, if you remember, the final hours of the Lord Jesus as he died the death of a criminal on the cross. Now, there was no particular routine for dealing with corpses of those who had been crucified. They might just be left to rot on the cross, or they would be simply taken down from the cross and discarded food for wild animals and wild birds. Either way, it was pretty undignified. Now, Joseph would have known that Jesus was being crucified. As Luke's gospel tells us, he had not agreed to the decision of the Sanhedrin to have him uh, crucified. We don't know whether he was at the event or not, present at the crucifixion. He might have witnessed it, but either way, he knows his Bible well, and no doubt the law concerning those who hung on a tree came to mind. And we have these words from Deuteronomy. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day. The first Good Friday was drawing to a close. There were only hours left before the Sabbath would begin, when it would not have been possible to do any work, let alone take Jesus' body down from the cross. And I'm sure those things would have been in Joseph's mind But I think the overriding motivation for Joseph was to give Jesus the dignity of a proper burial, the burial befitting of a noble man, as we'll see. And so it is that previously a secret Christian, Joseph now decides to come out of the shadows, to nail his colors to the mast, as it were. Mark's gospel tells us that he now plucks up the courage to come to the governor, Pilate. Now, who was Pilate? A few years ago, I used to look after the the bookings of the community hall down here. And once I thought that Pilate had risen from the dead because I had an email asking about um, running classes. Turns out it was Pilates classes, not, not Pilate's classes. That's something very different, apparently. No, Pilate was the governor of Judea. He was basically the the local representative of. Uh, the Roman Emperor. After Caesar, his was probably the highest position of authority in the land. Now, it wasn't easy to get access to Pilate for that reason. It was simply not possible for your average person to go and see him. I used to work for a company whose CEO could ring up and go and see the Prime Minister uh, almost at will, within reason, I suspect. But such was his standing and influence in, in UK industry that he had that, um, that privilege. And that, no doubt, would have opened doors for him. I don't suppose many of us would have that ability, would we? There'd be a few hurdles to get through first before we knocked on number 10. I don't expect any of the disciples would have had that opportunity or standing to be able to do that. Not that they were around, did you notice? They're notable by their absence at this point. So Joseph walks towards the residence of Pilate, using his status, but knowing what this will mean for him as a Sanhedrin council member. And Pilate grants Joseph's request, and he releases the body of Jesus to him. 
Now, I wonder if anyone recognises uh, this TV advert that's doing the rounds at the moment. Who's this cheeky chappy? Does anyone recognise that? A few nods, perhaps. I'm sure you've all seen uh, these, an increasingly num increasing number of these adverts doing the rounds. They're sort of suspiciously cosy and upbeat, aren't they? Have you made plans for your future? It's a slightly misleading question because it's actually asking the opposite, isn't it? But funeral plans, it's an increasing issue. The rising costs of funerals and wanting to avoid leaving that burden to your loved ones. Sort it out now while you've got time and money and even get a free Parker pen as you go. If you go to uh, Jerusalem today, there is a cemetery on, uh, on the Mount of Olives. That photo there is looking down from the Mount of, Mount of Olives with the Jewish cemetery in the foreground and the old city of Jerusalem behind where the, uh, where the temple used to stand. Now that cemetery there is real prime tomb real estate. It's what I call a tomb with a view, isn't it? There are plots on that cemetery there that will cost the thick end of £100,000. That's how popular it is. It's a bit more than £4 a month, I suspect, isn't it? Or it'll take you a long time at £4 a month. So if we go back 2,000 years now, we go to another tomb in Jerusalem. You see, Joseph of Arimathea also had a funeral plan of sorts. So wealthy and of high standing in Jewish society was he that, as was the custom in those days, he had his own brand-new tomb prepared for him. And this wasn't just any old tomb. This was the best tomb that money could buy. It wasn't based on an existing cave, which was often, often the case uh, that we used. It was hewn out of rock. It had a ceiling stone for his entrance. Again, such tombs were only owned uh, by the very wealthiest and noble in society. Joseph took hold of the body of the Lord Jesus, and he gave him the burial that he deserved, with respect, with dignity, and tender care. Joseph demonstrated very clearly the love and devotion that he had for Jesus, didn't he? He demonstrated the value that he placed on Jesus. He wrapped him in fine linen. Linen is expensive now. It was even more expensive back then. It had to be imported. It was very, very expensive. And Joseph put him in a tomb. Not any old tomb, but in his own tomb. And in so doing, an amazing thing happened that naturally speaking would have been impossible to have orchestrated a prophecy of Isaiah written 700 years earlier was fulfilled. Look at these words from Isaiah 53. They made his grave with the wicked, this is talking of Jesus, but with the rich at his death. Rich there is actually in the singular, it should, so it therefore reads with the rich man or the rich one in his death. They, those who crucified him, plotted to bury him with the criminals as they crucified him, but God overruled. Someone once wrote this, after his redemptive work had been accomplished, God allowed no more indignities to be perpetrated on Jesus. It was a borrowed tomb, 
I'm, um, I'm reading through Chronicles and Kings at the moment in my, in my quiet time, going through the Bible in a year, and um, it, it seemed that a very common theme was that when a king died, they would be placed in the tomb of their fathers. It was really important. It was a final act of dignity placed on the deceased king. But not in this case. This king was different. As the perfect, sinless son of God, he had no place being buried amongst others, amongst failed or sinful kings. Such was the need for him to have a brand new and a borrowed tomb. I've wondered what the significance of that borrowed tomb is. Why was it borrowed? Why was that important? I can only think that it was because he only had a temporary need for it, didn't he? He borrowed it because he only needed it for three days. That's wonderful, isn't it? So just a few lessons to learn from Joseph of Arimathea. If we're Christians this morning, then we too are disciples, and we can serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, we're expected to serve him. He will have work for us to do for him. He will have tasks set out for us by his grace. These examples of Joseph and the lesser-known disciples, if I can put it like that, they show us that we don't need to be in full-time ministry. We don't need to have status, fame, or wealth although in this case God used that for his glory. But whoever we are, whatever our circumstances, whatever we have or don't have, God can use us. He can use the resources he's given us and the situations that we're in for his purposes and for his glory. And furthermore, however little or unnoticed they might be to the world around us or indeed the church around us, we can be sure that it really does count. It will be remembered and it will last into eternity. Secondly, I wonder if perhaps you've been a secret Christian up until now. I'm sure many of us would claim to have been in that position in the past or even today. You know, Joseph of Arimathea had been a secret disciple, hadn't he? We read that. But God, in his limitless grace had a task for Joseph that would make full use of his circumstances, of his willingness, and which would cause Joseph to have the courage to stand up for him. It's wonderful, isn't it? And perhaps a timely reminder that however public you have or haven't been as a Christian, the Lord still can and will use you if you are willing. Isaiah, again, Isaiah 42, verse 3, reminds us, A bruised reed he, God, will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. That's a wonderful reminder, isn't it? What a loving and patient father we have, don't we? It's not too late to stand up for him, to be known as a disciple of Jesus, and to join your brothers and sisters on being on mission for him. Thirdly, there was a cost to Joseph in doing this. Not a cost to become a Christian, but a cost in being one. Let's not forget that though he was, that though he was rich, this was not a minor expense for Joseph. 
But such was his devotion and his worship of Jesus that he gave willingly and he gave accordingly. But more importantly than that, it very likely cost Joseph his job in doing this. In doing what he did in burying Jesus and in this way declaring himself to be a follower of him would have almost certainly cost him his job at the Sanhedrin and all the consequences that that would mean in that society. It's been said um, that in a real sense, when he, borrowed, when he buried the body of Jesus, Joseph buried himself economically, socially, and religiously. There was something about this man that caught Joseph's heart, that caused him to give everything that he had to follow Jesus. It might not cost us this much, but service for the Lord will always cost. It's a sacrifice. It might have cost Joseph dearly, but you know, I'm quite sure that he didn't regret what he, would done, what he had done, not for a minute, not for the rest of his earthly life. Now, I've mentioned um, at the start of this passage that there were two uh, attitudes towards the crucified Christ. We've considered Joseph, and now we come to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, they too came to Pilate, didn't they, after the burial of Jesus? And they asked if they could keep guard at the entrance of the tomb. Why? Well, they said that that deceiver said that he, in three days he would rise again. So it was to mitigate the risk that the disciples would steal his body and exclaim to the world that Jesus had indeed risen. Pilate gives them permission to do this, so they go and make the tomb secure. Upon getting there, they see that the stone has been rolled into place, and they place a seal on the stone. They put cord around that stone that was in place, some sort of wax impression with a signet ring to show that the authorities had ensured that that place, that that tomb was sealed and they had a guard set over it for three days. It's fascinating, isn't it, that these folk had remembered what Jesus said about being able to destroy this temple. Um, that they, they quoted um, Jesus' words um, from earlier on uh, in, in his uh, ministry Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I am able to rebuild it in three days. That was, that, was, that was his words. When it came to the trial of the Lord Jesus, they twisted those words, and they arranged for two false witnesses, do you remember, to turn up and say that Jesus said, I am able to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. That's not what he said, but they twisted his words. They wanted to imply that Jesus threatened to damage the temple blasphemy as a way of stacking up evidence against him. But here, in this account, they refer to his words correctly, don't they? They're so scheming. Now, although I don't believe that, um, although I don't think that they didn't believe that Jesus was the true Messiah, I wonder whether they too held a secret. I don't know, but I wonder whether they secretly harbored a suspicion that Jesus might just be who he claimed to be. They claimed that they wanted to seal the stone 
and set a guard to prevent the disciples from stealing the body and claiming that he had been raised from the dead. And maybe that, that really is all there was to it. But I wonder if you secretly have a suspicion that Jesus might just be who he claimed to be, that there might just be uh, some element of truth to the gospel message that we preach from this place week after week. We've considered the actions of two parties in response to the crucified body of Jesus, of somebody who is innocent, who claimed to be the Son of God, to take away the sins of the world. And you know, this morning, we too are confronted with those same facts, and we must make a decision one way or the other. We've already considered the action uh, of someone who used to be unbelieving, just like the chief priests and the Pharisees, but who had then accepted Jesus as his master and friend. And he treats the Savior with the highest honor and dignity that he can at that time. The chief priests and the Pharisees, on the other hand, were very happy with Jesus being sealed in a tomb, and they were eager to ensure that he stayed there. If we don't accept Jesus as Savior, then we too, in a sense, leave Jesus in the tomb, don't we? We blind ourselves to the truth that he has actually risen, and we would rather consider him as one still lying there in the grave, long dead and irrelevant. Please don't leave here or stop watching thinking that Jesus was just a good man, a religious leader with some interesting, nice ideas. Because I have to tell you that if you have not accepted Jesus as your saviour, then that leaves you with two choices on who you think he was. You either think he was mad or you think he was a liar. You cannot sit on the fence on this one. Over many weeks and months, perhaps years, I'm not sure, but we've read through Matthew's gospel, haven't we? We have this eyewitness account attested to by many others. And back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15, we read this. This was Jesus asking Peter. He said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus asks that, that same question of us this morning. Based on what Jesus said of himself, then either he was telling the truth, or he was a liar, or he was mad. It's one of those three things. There just isn't room for any other possibility based on what he said. The chief priests and the Pharisees thought that he was a liar. They called him that deceiver, didn't they, in this passage that we've read. Others thought that he was mad. They didn't give him the time of day. And it's still true today. Sadly, many don't take the time, uh, as we have, looking at, this, uh, at, the, at the Gospel of Matthew, to read the facts, to read what Jesus said, and to therefore conclude that either he was telling the truth, that he was a liar, or that he was mad. Because what he said doesn't leave room for any other outcome. Well, I'm afraid it's an inconvenient truth for many billions living today that the tomb is empty. After almost 2,000 years, not one of his bones has turned up. As we thought about at the beginning, there are many, many bones and relics of those purporting to be the remains of 
disciples, saints, and followers of Jesus. But in spite of them all, isn't it telling that there are none of the man himself? He wasn't a liar. He did rise. He has transformed the lives of many millions of followers from then until today, my own included, and many others here today in this room and watching. Providing the peace which passes all understanding, the joy of sins forgiven, provision and providence that only the believer can see and enjoy. That firm and steadfast hope that carries us through the storms of life which no earthly comfort can ever come close to. He wasn't a liar. He wasn't mad. We've looked at two contrasting views, attitudes this morning, haven't we? But notice, however, that they both had the same history. They both came from the same starting point. Joseph of Arimathea was a senior Sanhedrin council member. He once would have been as pharisaical and as anti-Jesus as the chief priests and the Pharisees. But there was evidently a realization in him, a dawning of the truth, that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. My point is that up until this morning, if you have been in that unbelieving group, know that Jesus died for you. It is not too late. Jesus did die. He died for you. He took your place on the cross. He took your tomb, as he did in a very literal sense, for Joseph. So, have you planned your future? I mean really planned your future. Do, won't you? Because Jesus, the risen Jesus, knocks on the door of your heart this morning and he will gladly make his abode in your heart and your life as he did for Joseph's.